0: Welcome. Welcome to Pillar Church. If you are in the treehouse, you are uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, you can line up the back with Miss Audrey and Miss Mary. <clears throat> Different Audrey. Audrey with an I. Go ahead and line up back there. That was some good singing, church. That was a, it was encouraging. I loved it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we have a lot to celebrate Um we have a lot to celebrate and give thanks for every day, but in particular, some days there are some things that are really, really noteworthy. One of those things is that we have a member of our church returning home from a long deployment, uh, Ben Hurley. Welcome home. Good to have you here, my friend. The other thing is uh, yesterday morning, Matt and Hannah Booth welcomed a baby boy into the world. Yes, celebrate that. Karsten Lee Booth, born yesterday morning. Everybody is healthy and happy. So just praise the Lord for the way that He is faithful. We're grateful for all of that. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are. Yeah, we're we're um, we're diving in this morning. But I want to start by asking you: um, How many of you find yourself in the category of "I have to see it to believe it"? Who who, who are? The, come on, be be real now. Who's one of those I-got-to-see-it-to-believe-it kind of folks? Okay, I'll say there's like maybe a half a dozen hands, but there's probably maybe a, a half a dozen more that should have gone up, but you know, that's okay. <clears throat> maybe in some cases it's different depending on who you're dealing with or the situation, right? But why do we at times feel the need or the tendency to, to need to see something in order to believe it? What do you think? Lack of faith. Lack of faith? Sure, yeah. Um, maybe, um, maybe you're skeptical by nature, perhaps. Maybe you've just been burned one too many times, and you're like, nope, not going to happen again. Maybe you're just not very trusting. Who knows? A variety of reasons. But when it does come to our faith, we don't really have the luxury of seeing, as one might say, in order to believe. I mean, after all, if we could see God, if he was sitting in the front row, physically manifested right there, we could see him, would that require faith to believe in him? I mean, he's, he'd be right there. It's like, no, it's, that's God. I mean, there he is. <laughs> Reality is, though, like for the disciples, even if we could see him with our own eyes, we would still struggle to believe we would. So today we're looking at a passage that is probably very familiar as we're kind of closing the, the, the door, so to speak, on John's Gospel. But it's going to come into the foreground, and I think it's going to challenge us to consider the very crucial event that we're, we're discussing this morning, yet that not a single person in here saw take place. Nobody in this room saw what happened 2,000 years ago in the tomb that we're going to discuss. Right? Correct. Just making sure we're all on the same page here. Nobody was there. Nope. Okay. Grab your Bible. If you need a Bible, there's some back there on the back table. I encourage you to have the Word of God in your hand in some form or fashion. I realize nowadays there's lots of technology involved, and that's fine too. Um, we're in John chapter 20. We are going to be looking at a couple of passages this morning in order to round out what I think uh, the Lord has for us this morning. So uh, turn again to John chapter 20. We're looking at verses 1 through 10. Uh, This is what the Word of God says. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, that is hope, that is truth, that is life. We thank you for this time we've been able to spend walking through John's gospel accounts. Lord, And now as we come to the resurrection portion of this particular story, we want to know what it means for us today that this event took place. Why is it significant? Why can we trust in it? What difference does it make? I pray for understanding of your word, a receiving heart for the word, and a response to the word in our lives this morning. I pray for your help, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, as usual, my friends, if you've got a question throughout the sermon, please text that number. Uh, That number is also in the digital bulletin, PillarOceanSide.com, if you lose sight of it. Um, That will hopefully come up every now and then uh, throughout the message. But, yeah, interact with us. Uh, Talk to us about uh, what we're looking at here. So, just to kind of catch us up a little bit, we're picking up in in John's gospel account, having recently read and discovered about the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember, we had that uh, two weeks ago. Um, He was hung on a cross. What was written... Above him on the sign that Pilate put there. What was written there? Jesus, King of the Jews. And how many languages is that written in? Three. three. languages. Yeah. So everybody knew who this Jesus claimed to be and what he was being hung for on the cross. When Jesus, last week we read, was about to breathe his last breath, he uttered three words. What were those three words that he said in English? It is finished. Right. It is finished finished. Just doing a little bit of group review here, that's all we're doing. Um, Also last week we discovered that there were a couple of individuals involved in the the tomb acquisition and the burial of Jesus. Who were the two people that were named as helping this take take place? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Nicodemus. I'm impressed. We're good, we're retaining stuff, that's a good thing. Where can we find all of this in case we don't know? John chapter 19. It's all right there. So if you haven't been with us, I encourage you to go back and read it so that you know. One of the things that 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 uh, the elders here are trying to bring into this whole experience for us is the fact that there's nothing that we're doing up here that you can't do yourselves in your quiet time with the Word of God. Right? It doesn't require a, a, a degree. Um, it doesn't require... Uh, much more than a willing heart, an openness to the word of God, and a trust in the Lord, <laughs> okay? So we can go to the word together and do this, but Jesus is on the cross, he dies, they take him down from the cross, they, they bound his body in linen cloths, and there was some spices and, and things that they used to kind of preserve the body, about 75 pounds worth of this stuff, they use as a tradition to sort of bind and, and preserve the body. That's what they did to Jesus. Now, this is actually fairly unusual because criminals who were crucified on a Roman cross weren't usually taken down right away. They were left up there. Why do you think they were left up there after they died? They had no place to be buried. And and what what's usually circling around dead things vultures, crows, everything. It was so that they could also experience humiliation after they died as these crows are just pecking at them. It's kind of graphic and gross, but for Jesus to be taken down is unusual. This wasn't something that they would have normally done. So he's brought down on Friday evening just before the Sabbath begins. Tracking with me? Prepared for burial and then laid in a sealed tomb ...that no one had ever been laid in before. This is probably all somewhat familiar to you, even if you're you know, sort of newer to the faith... ...you kind of understand there's some aspects of this story that you're picking up on. This morning, our text picks up on the third day. And all four of the gospel writers don't call it the third day. What do they call it here in John? The first day of the week. All four gospel writers use that terminology... Perhaps signaling to us that something new is happening. It's not a couple of days after this happening. No, it's the first day of the week. So it's subtle, but maybe there's something new that is happening here. Something unique is taking place. Okay, verse 1. We're here, first day of the week. Who is it that's coming to the grave? Mary Magdalene. All right, what time of day is it? It's early in the morning. And John says, it's still dark outside. Now, if you're thinking critically and you've been here with us through all of John, something may be going off like a little alarm button. Something about it still being dark. Hmm. Do you suppose that this detail was included by John to continue the theme of people being in the dark when it comes to who God is? Because as we'll learn here in a minute, Mary is still in the dark, like spiritually. She doesn't know what's going on. She says, where is Jesus gone? They took him. (laughs) Didn't he already tell them and repeatedly that he was going to die and be raised? So she's in the dark still. (laughs) It's not just physically dark outside, but she, like some of the other disciples, just haven't gotten there yet. But when she gets to the tomb, she notices that the the entrance is open, the the stone has been taken away, and her response is to what? Run and inform the other disciples that something had happened. We see in verse 2 that that there are two specific disciples that that are referenced. That doesn't mean those are the only two that were there. They were probably, many of them gathered together, but these two um, specifically, which are who? Who? Peter and John, Peter, the the disciple whom Jesus loved, who we know is John. Um, She says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they laid him. Now, again, if we're looking at this verse and we're thinking critically, two questions might come to mind. Who are they and who is we? So who are they? Who, who, Who do you think Mary might be referring to? Either the Romans or or the Jews, somebody who had something to gain from Jesus not being there, the Jews specifically, right? Because they were the instigators of all this. They were the ones that brought charges. They had something to gain to make sure that Jesus was dead, right? The Romans, yeah, who who knows? Um, They might have had something to gain from that as well. Um, Another uh, suggestion over history has been grave robbers. It it wasn't super uncommon. People would go in there and they would, you know, take things and people and, and stuff like that. So, regardless, Mary doesn't really seem to be concerned overly with who they are, but what? Where they have taken Jesus. She's worried about where he is. Okay, but what about the we? She says, we don't know where they placed him. Is there anybody with Mary right now? I have a no, I have a yes, I have a possibly. Don't just take this particular account in mind, but if you know of other gospel accounts, maybe you can start to bring other pieces of the scriptures together. Is there anybody else with Mary at this point? Yes, there are other women with Mary at this point. John only highlights Mary Magdalene being there, but if you go and look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all talk about other ladies that are there with Mary as well. So they collectively don't know where Jesus has been laid. So what is Peter and John's immediate response to this word? What do they do? Right away, what, what, what physical act do they take? They're running. Mary was running. There's a lot of cardio in this passage for some reason. They're running to the tomb. But not only that, John wants to to make very, very clear to everybody that he won. That he started behind Peter, but got to the tomb first. Now there is a lot of speculation of why this is included. I'm not going to go there because I don't think it really, really matters. It mattered to John, um, because it's going to come up again. We're not exactly sure why he goes out of his way to bring this information, but it is a little bit humorous. This actually sounds like something I would do. Like let me just make sure that this gets jotted down. If me and Mike are running, I want people to know that I was faster than him, kind of thing. But John gets to the tomb. First, he does three things, and he doesn't do one thing. So what are the three things that he does according to verse 5? Well, he, he stoops, he looks, and he sees. We see that in verse 5, right? What does he see from a distance as he's standing at the threshold of the tomb? He sees the linen cloths. Another word for that is the grave clothes. A few moments later, Peter arrives on the scene after John. What does he do instantly? He goes right in. Right? Doesn't even observe what's happening, just typical Peter sort of impulsive style there. Boom, I'm in, I'm in the tomb. <laughs> he sees the same thing that John sees. Linen cloths lying there that at one time were wrapped around Jesus. But we get a little bit more information in verse 7, don't we? There's a a, a little bit of information about the articles that are left behind. There was a face cloth that was on the face of Jesus. And we see here that it's not lying with everything else, is it? It's folded up neatly and placed to the side. Let me just pause here for a moment. Because this is one of those things where we can just kind of sweep through and just continue on with the storyline But on a typical Easter Sunday service, we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus, right? And we're not going to spend a lot of time often talking about specifics of what's happening inside the tomb, other than to say that it's empty, right? That's what we're celebrating. But is it fully empty? No. There's things that are left behind, and those things have some significance for us. We have grave clothes that are left behind by Jesus, let me ask you something. How many other resurrection accounts do we have in John's Gospel? One other resurrection account, and we, we heard from Ms. Joe. Who was it? Lazarus. Lazarus. Okay, if you're not familiar with that, we're gonna we're gonna look at it in here in a minute. But Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So part of what is happening here that John is doing, he's going to some length here to pit one resurrection against the other. So let's just go back real quick and let's check out the other resurrection account. Let's look at John chapter 11. You can turn there or you can look up here. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. This is Lazarus's tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, "Take away the stone." When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. How does Jesus, how does Lazarus rather come out of the tomb? Bound. He's bound. A mummy basically, I heard that. Yeah, bound, he's wrapped up and we've got this face cloth going on here. He needs to be freed from the chains of the grave. But when Jesus is resurrected, he's not bound, right? He is set free from the bondage of death. Do you see the stark contrast between these two things that are happening here? But there's something else, something I've actually never really put together. It has to do with that cloth that's folded up and neatly set to the side. That's sort of an odd thing, right? It's a little detail that you can kind of just push through. It's like, okay, cool, there's a little face cloth over there. What's the big deal with that? Well, maybe it's not so odd. First of all, I think it discredits any account that it was grave robbers that went in there. Because how many grave robbers you know are going to unravel all these yards and yards of cloth and pounds and pounds of ointments and and spices and herbs and then neatly fold a face cloth? I mean, that's not going to happen, right? So it, it, it wasn't grave robbers. But let's look at one more account. If you want, you can go in your Bible. You can look on the screen again to Exodus chapter 34. So here, Moses is having some interactions with God, like literal face to face, like personal interactions with God. He's up on the mountain and he's getting the stone tablets, which contain what? The Ten Commandments. Right. So let's look at Exodus 34. We're going to start in verse 29. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands and he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he has, was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with So the face cloth, the words that John uses here, are directly related, associated to this Hebrew word for veil. Let me read to you one commentator's note on this. He says, in light of the Old Old Testament context, this term would have recalled the face veil of Moses. The fact that Jesus did not merely drop the face cloth or veil but carefully removed, folded, and placed it to the side is telling. Like Moses, who put aside the veil when he ascended to meet God in glory, Jesus, who is the new Moses, has put aside the veil of his flesh as he ascends into the presence of God to receive from him the glory which he had with the Father before the world was made. You see what a picture this is? It's fantastic. It's a powerful moment here in John for us to just sit and ponder. Let me just give you one more scripture to drive this point home, because maybe I said something that you're like, wait, Jesus, the new Moses, like, what's happening here? Turn to Hebrews 3. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. You see, Jesus is, in fact, greater than Moses, and, and we belong to him if we hold fast and are confident in the hope that we have in Jesus, right? The folded face cloth. Speaks of who Jesus is and it sets him apart from everyone. So all of these things are driving to the point that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He was resurrected from the grave. It did happen. Do you believe it? Let's pick up back in verse 8. Here we come to the sort of the climax of the passage. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, again, John, we get it. <clears throat> he also went in. Now Peter's inside. Now John, sitting, stooping, looking, seeing, also enters in. But when he enters in, something happens. He sees and he believes. He saw the linen where Jesus had once laid and no longer was. But what exactly is John believing? The context seems to point here that John is believing that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He's not necessarily believing what Mary had told him earlier, he's believing that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. The object of his belief is the resurrection. But there still seems to be an incomplete picture here as we look at verse 9, where it says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So, what does this mean? (laughs) Well, I think the simple answer is that the verb tense in verse 8 that John saw and believed is that he began to believe. You see, we're seeing this happen in real time. John's recording it for us as it's happening. It's a process for him, like it was for a lot of you. I know it was for me. I didn't hear the gospel and then immediately believe every single thing and was transformed in that moment. It took me a long time to walk through that process. He began to believe, and that believe is in the sense of salvation, Not necessarily just the resurrection. He's piecing it all together now that this means what Jesus said is actually taking place. He's, He's watching it happen in real time. And it's being revealed to him in stages, if you want to look at it that way. It was sort of as if this new level of certainty, like John sort of leveled up in his understanding and his belief of what is happening here. But he's still lacking just a little bit of understanding, not really fully putting all of it together just yet. But regardless of what's going on specifically in John's mind, because we can, you know, hem and haw all day long about that. Let's just pull back and look at sort of the 30,000 foot view and ask the million dollar question. What does the resurrection mean? And and what are people's responses? How can you respond to to the resurrection. So first, let's just briefly talk about what does it mean that when they went in, he was no longer there. As simply as we can state it, it means that Jesus Christ was vindicated by God, that <laughs> he was in fact the Son of God, the Messiah, which means that all he ever said and did is true. Not only is it true, true but it's effective, what he accomplished on the cross and all the things that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. This moment secures all of that as real and true and effective. It means that his offer of salvation to you and to me and to everyone who's lived on this earth, that if you repent and believe, is 100% valid. In fact, our faith and our eternal position depend on that reality. Go with me to 1 Corinthians, because I want to drive this point home. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to pick up in verse 15. This is um, Paul talking now. He says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Now drop down to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? Do you believe it? Do you? Will you? Some don't. Some don't. Last scripture, last point. How do people respond to the resurrection? So there's an interesting account when Paul is preaching the gospel to the really, really smart, educated people in Athens. right? And he's going through this entire gospel presentation in Acts chapter 17. It's really interesting to watch him work through it. And after he makes his way through the entire presentation, he gets to... One piece in particular that we're going to look at right now. So Acts chapter 17 and verse 22. Do I not have that there? No, sorry. If you want to go back and read the gospel presentation, that's verses 22 through 31. But you pick up on the back half of verse 31, and this is what he says. After all of this, right? And of this he has given assurance, this being the gospel. He has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and... Yeah, just the first part of 34. You don't need the names. So... Paul goes to his entire gospel presentation, and he says, all of this is secured, is true, is real, because of the resurrection of the dead. And then we've got three potential responses that Paul knows for us, and that we will see here today as well. Some mocked. They heard about this resurrection, they straight up were just making fun of, of Paul. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, Jesus raised from the dead, okay, sure. They mocked him, they made fun of that. There are people today that do it, maybe not as, you know, boldly as that, but yeah, they poke fun of it, they make fun of it. So a response to the go- to the gospel, particularly to the resurrection, is a mocking. But then there were some other people who said, okay, I hear you, but I need to hear some more. I'm intrigued. Can you give me a little bit more about that? Come back and teach me again. So there's some hesitancy, but there's some willingness to continue the conversation, right? Maybe you've had some interactions with people like that as you're walking through some of these things. You're like, eh, yeah, kind of, maybe, let's get together again. That's a good place for someone to be. We can continue to walk that out with them. Not quite ready to make that decision. But then we saw that some joined and what? And believed. Some some joined in Paul and his entourage, and all the people that were doing what he was doing, and they believed, based on that gospel presentation, and the truth about the resurrection. So the question for all of us here this morning is then, what category are you in today? Because it matters. It absolutely matters. Are you the mocking, denying the resurrection of Jesus category? Are you the... I'm still kind of piecing this thing together. I'm not quite sure yet, but but I'm, I'm intrigued enough to want to continue the conversation. Or are you in that category where you're like, I believe like I believe like I believe because my life depends on it. Just like he said in Acts chapter 17, because if none of this is true, then you are still dead in your sin and your faith is futile. Do you believe like your life depends on it because... It does. I said in the beginning that we were talking about an event that took place that everyone here affirmed that we weren't there for. right? None of us were there for the resurrection. We didn't see it with our own eyes. But it is well documented. However, seeing is believing is not an option for us 2,000 years later, right? So by what means do we have to trust that this actually happened? Faith. 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 By faith. What is the title of this message that we've going through for 10 months? Believe. Believe. In a couple of weeks, we're going to finally get to the, 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 the sentence... That John tells you, I'm writing these things. Everything that I'm written, I'm writing it so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But he writes another thing at the end of chapter 20 about seeing and believing. Let's look at verse 29. John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Well, that's all of us, right? We've not seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. John is making it very, very clear and plain for us. He doesn't go into as much detail as the other gospel writers. So you can go back and look through Matthew, Mark, and Luke and see there's a lot of other pieces that are happening, other people involved, and things going on with Roman soldiers, and, and we're going to look at some angels and things coming up. You know, um, What we need to understand is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our salvation let me, let me close by asking you this question. We, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the cross and the significance and the importance of his death, his sacrificial death in our place, his blood shed for you and for me. And now we're talking about the resurrection. So let me ask you a question. Which is more important, the cross or the resurrection? Or is it a trick question? Yes. Because <laughs> I would ask you the same question in a different way. What's more important when it comes to breathing? Inhaling or exhaling? Which is more important? Yes. 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 yes, They are both necessary for the full, complete picture of the gospel. So ask yourself this question this morning. Where are you in the category when it comes to belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And is your hope fully in him? Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for this incredible, amazing, and wonderful scene that John records for us in these ten short verses. It changes everything. It changes everything. Lord, in these verses, we have confirmation, assurance, and hope that who you are and what you accomplished on the cross and what you said you would do time and time again, you did. You achieved. You died in our place. The death that we deserved because of the sin in our hearts and our lives, the ways in which we have rebelled against you, we deserved that punishment, Lord, but by grace you sent Jesus in our place. And his blood was shed for our sins, that we might be forgiven and reconciled back to you, brought back into relationship with you. And on that third day, on the first day of the week, it was all confirmed that Jesus is the Messiah and we can trust fully that you defeated sin and death and that you are now seated at the right hand of the Father I pray that each person here this morning would wrestle through that, whether they've been a believer for 20 years, 20 minutes, we're not quite there yet. Let us all regularly be reminded of the power of the cross and the wonder of the grave and the empty tomb. Lord, we love you so much. We honor you, we praise you, we thank you. Jesus' name.